0: reading from Matthew 6, if you want to open to it in your Bibles. So continuing in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, then the light within you is darkness. Then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow in his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jacob. Um, This morning, uh, early this morning, Pastor Dave, sent me a note and, and the text and said he wasn't feeling well today um, so he's quite sick um, and he was scheduled to preach on Matthew 6 um, but he's not able to today so he sends his regrets that he's not able to be here but he did craft a very good sermon. so we're going um, I get the privilege of getting to preach that sermon um, to you today so this is a sermon that he's crafted and so uh, let's pr- why don't we pray before we get into this word? God, thank you for this day, and thank you for your word. Thank you for what Jesus says to us in Matthew 6. And God, we pray that your spirit will be moving in us now, Lord, as we hear these words. God, may you speak to us, speak to our hearts, and allow us to take in Matthew 6 and, and the Sermon on the Mount, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Now, you may have had an experience like this before you find the most beautiful-looking fruit. And in anticipation of that lovely taste on your palate, as you pull back the peel or, worse, bite in, to your disgust, it's mush and stench. Beautiful on the outside, yes, but rotten on the inside. Now, Jesus reminds us and warns us that what's on the inside, our motive, our our aim, our heart's goal, our motive matters. He says that when we use our goodness to get the recognition of others, that's all we get. Like a beautiful fruit that's rotten to the core. God, who sees our hearts, he won't be deceived by our play acting. Now, last week in chapter 5, we saw that in this sermon, Jesus is showing us how to really live as God intended. But Jesus is using the religious leadership of his day, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, as the counterpoint to authentically living Godward. He says that our right living must go well beyond how they live for those who are his followers. We need to live better than them. How could that be, Jesus' hearers might be wondering, and we might too. But notice, Jesus uses their honor-seeking spirituality as the negative example. Although they may be doing good things, giving, prayer, fasting. But their aim, it isn't to love God, to simply reflect and resemble their father in heaven. It's themselves. And so they don't get God. They get only what they were after. Recognition from others. Nothing else. And that is really sad. So Jesus says this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, And notice the motive, to be seen by them. Don't announce it with trumpets or toot your own horn, as we might say, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Again, to be honored by others. Now there's a real temptation. I've seen it, I've felt it, I've even gotten into it at times. It's the temptation to seek recognition from other people. You know what? There's a desire to be noticed, admired. It's a temptation to use even the good things that God calls us to in self-serving ways. Now, Jesus says that if this is our goal, that's all we get. The word hypocrite, it's actually a word from Greek theater. It means a mask, play acting. And God sees right through it. Jesus says, no play acting, folks. It's the quickest way to losing any real, authentic spiritual wholeness. But we need to see, the the problem isn't being recognized. Dave tells this story. He says when his son Connor was 20 months old, he would count to two. One, two. One, two. Dave says it's adorable, but a big part of his role as a father is to notice and encourage his son in his development. Well done, son. I'm proud of you. And he says it's still his job to recognize his boys as they grow, to affirm and encourage them. And as we grow up, I think that we still feel that desire in our hearts, don't we? Whether it's your boss who says, you did a great job there. Or your spouse to notice that you spent the afternoon cleaning up the house. Being recognized isn't the issue. In fact, God commands us to honor others, to encourage them. It's a gift that we get to give to others. But there's no verse that tells us to seek honor, to seek to be noticed. So the problem isn't being recognized, It's seeking it from the wrong sources. You know, there's actually only one person we should look to, and that's the one who promises to reward us, like a good dad, affirming, blessing, recognizing his kids. God does that. Jesus says, You will receive your reward from the Father when you give so that your own left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. It's in private, not seeking props. Then you receive your reward from your Father who sees what you do in private. So it's not sheer altruism after all. There is reward. When we let God be our only audience, the the one we seek to please, he will be pleased, and we will be rewarded. Jesus doesn't say how, though. But if, if we were to guess at it, maybe we could get what we're after. Jesus says that if you're after being noticed by people, that's all you get. Or if you're praying in secret, seeking God just to get God, to connect with Him, well, that's what you'll get. God Himself. Could that at least be part of the reward? Or maybe with giving, maybe it's that we get this beautiful sense of satisfaction, of fullness that comes from becoming like God in His generous giving. There's a sort of peace that comes from becoming like God in His generous giving. It comes from loving God just for God. And it satisfies like nothing else. Maybe that's part of the reward. And Jesus goes on to talk about storing up treasures in heaven. Maybe it's for now and for later. So Jesus doesn't say what the reward is, but he promises it. So our first take home is just this: do all the good things that God is calling you into, but do it with only God as your audience. Having an audience of one. Um, my wife, this is Colton, my my wife, she used to play basketball and she would write on her shoe when she played in college, AO1, which stands for audience of one. And a lot of athletes still do this, those who are believers. So that it reminds them not to be seeking the approval of others, but rather playing hard for the Lord, for God. And so Jesus tells us here that when you give, not if, but when you give, when you fast, when you pray, not if, Doing that for God. So be kind to others, just out of obedience and love to God and love for your neighbor. Pray and go without food or some other important thing at times. Fast. And do it just to connect more closely with God. But but make it a show about being seen as spiritual, and that's all you get. But now, some of you remember from last week, we read what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 16. He says this: Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. And some might wonder, okay. So isn't that a contradiction? First, let's let's note this. That when why does Jesus say let your light shine? That others may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So the motive it isn't self-seeking. It's about glorifying God. And second, notice that when Jesus says Let your light shine. That comes right after a discussion about being the salt of the earth, meaning being distinct as God's people, different in order to show God's goodness to the world. So those who are tempted on the one hand to hide their light, to not have any public witness in their community, you know, that might be because we're embarrassed and we don't want people to know that we're Christian. We'd rather blend in than let anything distinctive about our faith shine through. It's a lack of boldness. On the other hand, others might ever so subtly use giving or prayer or other spiritual practices for recognition. So what's the fix? Over 100 years ago, a guy named A.B. Bruce, he proposed a way through personal cowardice on the one side and spiritual vanity on the other. This is what he says. Show when tempted to hide, hide when tempted to show. You know, that's that's helpful, isn't it? Show when tempted to hide, hide when tempted to show. Jesus protects us with his words on our motives from inauthentic approach to spiritual practice that ultimately it doesn't have anything to do with God, but just seeks human approval. Jesus deals with mixed up motives, but that's not all. Jesus also knows the propensity of our hearts to search for our security in the wrong place. Do not store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You can't lose that treasure. And he concludes, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, don't store up treasures. We will all treasure something or someone. One preacher says it well. He says, every human being is a treasurer. Every single one of us, consciously or unconsciously, is investing in some sort of security about the uncertainties of the future. And that just makes sense. So Jesus expects that we will treasure treasures. But he says not to treasure the wrong things. We put our treasure in the wrong bank sometimes. He says, do not store up treasures on earth. They wear out or get stolen. Store up treasures in heaven. That's a treasure that won't break down, can never be taken. Eugene Peterson says it well in the message. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. What you love, what you treasure, that will ultimately dictate the direction of your life. And this begs us to ask ourselves, what really do I treasure? What am I really after? And really that comes down to who is really my master? You know, that might sound like an odd question to some of us, but Bob Dylan was right. You are going to have to serve somebody, he says. Now, in the Bible, if anything other than God is first and best in our hearts, that thing is called an idol. It's a God substitute. It's anything, even good things, that we allow to become our ultimate. Harold Best writes this. At this very moment and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone, an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Jesus Christ. In our worship, what we what or whom we love, as he goes on to say, has significant consequences. Everyone is being shaped thereby, shaped by what our hearts are being poured out toward, what we're loving. And so everyone is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or of evil. No one is exempt and no one can wish to be. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers and will remain so forever, for eternity is an infinite extrapolation of one of two conditions. One, a surrender to the sinfulness of sin unto infinite loss, or the commitment of personal righteousness unto infinite gain. This is the central fact of our existence, and it drives every other fact. Every decision. All the little decisions that stack up in our everyday lives, they are a response to what we treasure most. And as Beth says, what we love and serve is sending us along a particular trajectory for our lives now and into eternity. And that's just another way of saying what Jesus has just said here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we choose to love, to worship, to give our attention to, that will set the direction of our lives. So Jesus makes it so clear. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve. You cannot be devoted to. You cannot let your life center around. You cannot serve both God and God and money. Yes, we will all seek security for the future somewhere. We all know that. We also know, but don't always like to think about, the fact that so often where we put our hope simply can't produce that security. We know our money can't buy us real security. No one stands at a graveside and says, well, good thing he had such a great investment portfolio. We know it can't be our ultimate hope but it still competes for our allegiance, our attention and focus. Yes, Jesus tells us, your heart will be devoted to something or someone. One of these two, God or your income statement, one will be the gravitational force around which your life revolves. So he makes us face the question, what's at the center? What or who are you worshiping or serving? Notice Jesus doesn't say money is bad. He doesn't say we shouldn't invest in what God gives us wisely and for the sake of God's kingdom. But if you serve this master, if your life revolves around it, that's what you've got in the end. A heart beautifully wrapped in money. You cannot also serve God and money. One of those two will dictate your life. Which will it be? But then, Jesus is showing us that when we pick the right one, everything shifts. And when we get that, when we treasure the right treasures and serve the right master, we get to breathe again. Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore, which means in light of what I just said about where your treasures are and which master you're serving, therefore, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them aren't you much more valuable than they? One of Dave's friends was sharing with him this week that the image of God caring for the birds, that this was freedom for him. He talked about how he struggled with worry even as a little kid, that he was always stressing out about the future. But he said, when we realize we can't control tomorrow and that God loves you and cares for you, in other words, when you treasure the right treasure and serve the right master, you can actually let go of that need to control your circumstances. And that's true. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, food, clothes to wear, the basics of your life, they will be given to you as well. Your Father, he knows what you need. And he'll supply it as you focus your energy and time and money on what he's all about. But how do we get there? Jesus gives us a clue. And let's not miss this part about the eyes, but let's see now how it connects. Jesus talks about our vision, about our eyes, in verses 22 to 23. When Jesus talks about the eye being healthy, this is another way of speaking about being generous. Looking at the world, not for opportunity to get for myself, but to see how I can give myself to God's kingdom priorities. And the opposite, the unhealthy eye. This is a way of speaking of envious living. It's a way of looking at the world through the lens of greed, of I've got to get what I can for me and mine. It's the outlook of Ebenezer Scrooge. So Jesus asks us, how's your eyes? How's your vision? When you look at the world, what do you see? Healthy eyes see the world of the desire to get on board with what God is up to, to participate generously in his work. Unhealthy, stingy eyes? A growing, deepening darkness. And so it seems then that he suggests if our vision is bad, we're probably treasuring the wrong treasures and serving the wrong master. And perhaps one of the key ways out of it is, well, giving. Giving loosens the grip of money on our hearts. Giving sacrificially is a signal that we trust God. By giving of our money, we say to ourselves and to God, even our our money, who we really worship. We're saying, money, it's not you I serve. You don't have control of my life. I have the, the ability to decide how to use you, not the other way around. But honestly, how do we get to that place? It seems so easy to slide into the anxiety of life in the key of currency. But notice, at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is a prayer. The cry for the kingdom is how one theologian put it. This sermon Jesus preaches is not just a matter of information, but encounter. The kingdom is life with God. It's not a path to personal fulfillment or whole and healthy living. No, it's a program. It's life with a person, capital P. A person that Jesus prays and calls our Father. Your name, not ours, be honored. Remember? This whole section began with Jesus teaching us not to seek our honor, and this prayer reorients our hearts to whose honor we do seek. How do we seek God's kingdom first? His righteousness. We pray this prayer as true in our lives until we're simply living as God's loved kids, our Father, and desiring that His name, not ours, be honored. And your kingdom, God, not ours. And your will, your ways, not mine. This tells us, too, that kingdom life is not something we do in our strength. We are asking God for his kingdom to come because he is the only one who makes that reality. He's building his kingdom, not us, not me, not you. And we are praying our trust in him for our real and ongoing needs. Why don't we worry? Because our Master. God, our Maker, is the source of supply. And He supplies our deepest need, our need for forgiveness and hearts that are forgiving. And it's not just that we wouldn't experience temptation. Everyone will experience that. Temptation to be noticed by others. Oh, that's real. We saw that. And to put our hope in wealth. True. That's there. But by this prayer, God graces us to resist giving in and for protection. Deliver us from evil. Jesus ends his prayer instruction in a way that is sobering and realistic. If you're a Christian, you follow a crucified Messiah. And he promised that if you follow him, you'll have trouble. Count on pressure, even hatred, Jesus tells us. They hated me, why would you be exempt? And remember, he's already said in this sermon, blessed are those who are persecuted on account of me. You're being treated just like the prophets of old. Rejoice and be glad, because God knows, and he will reward you. So this prayer for deliverance, it doesn't mean we won't face pressure and pain and attack, but it's deliverance from the worst of the ravages of evil, especially the work of the evil one, God's enemy, and yours and mine. That's why Paul, he reminds us in Ephesians 6, that we really do need to be armed with the resources of our faith with God's own words in the Scriptures, with an awareness of our salvation and life in Christ, feet fitted to take the good news abroad and by a prayerfully dependent life. As Jesus makes clear, God gifts us with this incredible reality that we can actually come to the God who upholds the universe moment by moment like little kids running to the arms of a parent. But I also know that for many, prayer can seem like a chore, a thing on the to-do list to be done. And it's true that there are many things grabbing for our attention. And it's also true that prayer has always required discipline. Like anything worth, do, basically like anything worth doing in this life, any relationship needs to be cultivated to thrive. And I realize that we live in a particularly distracted age. And this means being super deliberate about carving out space and time, about going to a secret place, as we've sung about before. Finding ways to connect with God, with distractions aside. And so uh, this point's been made before, but, but we'll make it again here. Our phones, these things that everyone has in their pocket, they're designed to keep grabbing our attention. So could we actually turn off our phones for at least half an hour like, actually all the way off. Um, Dave says that sometimes he does this in his praying or reading and so, he, so that his writing isn't distracting. He says he needs to do it more. I do too. Um, Dave's brother recently asked him this. How did pastors ever manage before smartphones? He was being a little cheeky, of course. But he was offering a worthwhile challenge. You know, I don't actually have to be 100% available every waking moment. I don't. You don't either. I'm allowed to go for a walk without my phone and just enjoy God's world and talk to my Father. You are too. If you needed permission to turn off your phone, and if we're able to grant it from up here, there you go. And that's one of the reasons why, why, why often we encourage people to not only use the Bible app on their phone for your times of listening to God through the Scriptures. We suggest that you read a paper-bound copy of the Bible. Super old school, yeah. But guess what? They still print these things. One reason is because your phone is designed to distract you, right? to reward your brain with hits of dopamine by constantly bringing up the possibility of something new, interesting, novel. A like comment, or even a comment on the social media feed. All the research on cognition tells us that. And it also tells us that we're losing our capacity for thinking deeply about important things. That's what the data says. So when you pray, not if, when you pray, go to a secret place, not to be seen by others, but just to meet with your Father. And you're allowed to leave all your contacts and text messages and the pings and flashing lights outside the room to just give yourself time of just being with God. What a gift of prayer, what a gift prayer is in our distracted age, because we actually get God just for God. Yes, Jesus taught us to pray, God, your kingdom come. And here he calls us to seek, very practically, to let our Father be our source of applause in life, and he's the one who ultimately frees us to have a heart that can truly get on board with God's mission. See, Jesus didn't just teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is actually what Jesus prays too. On the night Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he knew what was coming. It was the plan he and his father had decided long before. But, But, maybe there was another way. Maybe death, broken body, shed blood, bearing sin. Maybe there'd be a way out, a change of plan. But then Jesus prayed the prayer he taught us Father, not my will, not my desire, but yours be done. He went there to the cross, laid his life down to buy us back, and taking in this love and new life, that's what can make us like him. See, Jesus not only tells us to store up our treasures in heaven, he stores up his treasures there too. What's his treasure? It's you. He gave his life up to win you for himself and for eternity so you could have a relationship like he does with the Father. He sought the kingdom first for you. And now he calls us to follow his example, to seek his kingdom, to give deeply of ourselves for the sake of others so they too could know the joy of being able to call God our Father. That's why this Gospel of Matthew ends as it does, sending us out into the world with the good news in our hearts and on our hands and our lips. So now let's focus our attention to what Jesus has done for us. It's because of Jesus' broken body and his blood that was poured out for us. Because of that, we can say, Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And he does. And when we look to the cross, we can see how deeply we're loved. And now I no longer need to seek the recognition of others because I know I'm valued and loved by my Father because I already know my worth. I don't need to seek the recognition from others to fill that hole in my heart, the ache to be noticed. I'm going to invite our our ushers to come up um, here and uh, join me as we... As we pray now, prepare to receive the bread and the cup. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you that on the cross you show us how valuable we are, how loved we are, where we don't need to seek the recognition of others. Because you gave your life for us. God, that we know our worth, the hole in our heart that aches to be noticed God you notice it and so I pray that as we spend time here reflecting on the good news that you have paid the price for our sin God that your spirit might move in our hearts to convict us of those things that we are looking for approval from or in and in those ways that we need to love selflessly to we pray this in your name amen